Hi, I'm Elin Miller and this is Everyday Reconciliation. This podcast is a hands-on look at reconciliation, what it means, why it's important and what everyday actions non-Indigenous people like me can take as part of this national project. As you can hear, I'm a settler. I immigrated to Canada in 2008 and now live in Ottawa on the traditional unceded territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. Today, I wanted to explore one particular facet of nation-to-nation relationships, diplomacy. So, I'm joined by a former Canadian ambassador who is also a newly appointed member of the Order of Canada and member of the Takapit First Nation, Deborah Chatsis. A note before we get started. Deborah's voice is affected by radiation treatment. Some listeners may have a little trouble hearing her clearly at times during our conversation. Tonsay, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Um, can you tell me a bit about yourself and your background, Deborah? Yes, I'm from uh, Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, Treaty 6 territory. Um, I am a member of Atakaku First Nation where my mother was from, and my father was from Bombmaker First Nation, which is west of here, outside of North Battleford. I grew up in British Columbia and then Saskatchewan. I graduated from high school in Prince Albert, went to university in Saskatoon at the University of Saskatchewan, studied engineering and then law. After university, I wanted to work overseas. So I was looking at teaching over teaching English overseas or working for a law firm. But in the end, I heard about the foreign service exam. So I wrote the exam in 1988 and started with the what was then external affairs ministry in 1989. I had my first posting in 1990 to Beijing, Beijing, China. And that was followed by um, postings to Bogota, Colombia and Miami in Florida. In those jobs, I was working on immigration-related issues. But when I returned to Canada after being in Miami, I started working on legal issues and focused on human rights law, humanitarian law, and UN law. So that's how I ended up um, going on posting to Geneva where I worked at our mission to the UN and then our mission to the UN in New York after that. And that's where I met Ellen in New York. Yeah, you were the legal advisor to the Canadian mission and I was the legal advisor at the Swedish mission to the UN. So that was pretty cool. And uh, then I think I found myself on a bit of a a different path. I went um, back to... Ottawa, and I worked on policy issues, human rights policy. I also worked on 
geographic issues, uh, focusing on South Asia. In 2010, I was appointed as the Canadian ambassador to Vietnam, where I was for three years. I went back to Ottawa for a couple of years. And then in 2015, I was appointed as ambassador to Guatemala and concurrently as high commissioner to Belize. Mm -hmm. So I was there for a couple of years and um, just on a personal note, I had some kind of funny medical symptoms, but they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And when I came back to Canada on holidays, I had a CT scan and then I was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. Mm-hmm. This was uh, following a brush with breast cancer that I had in 1998. So 20 years later, it came I was back. faced. Yeah, I was faced with the recurrence. So I um, finished up my job in Guatemala a little bit early, and went on medical leave, and then retired officially from the Foreign Service in November of 2019. So I moved back to Prince Albert Mm -hmm. uh, to be close to my family. So I've got relatives in the area and my sister and her husband live across the street. So I'm I'm really lucky to have family around. Mm -hmm. I have a brother and a sister in Regina and their families are there too. Uh, you mentioned that you, your dad was from the Poundmaker First Nation. I just wanted to pick up on that because I know he was um, he was a peacemaker, so not um, not so different from from you and your profession. He was trying to prevent conflict, actually, with the colonial power, um, and yet he was unjustly convicted of treason um, in 1885, and then he was just recently exonerated. Um, how, I know since you're related to Chief Poundmaker, how did that make you feel when he was finally exonerated uh, by the Prime Minister two years ago? It was um, it was a nice feeling that that Indigenous history was being recognized. You know that um, people were aware of what had happened in North Battleford, and these stories were passed down from generation to generation. Um, but the official history didn't reflect this. So once the government made the decision to, to exonerate Chief Baumaker, it was an official recognition of that history. So that was that felt really good. And I, you know, I think that's a good example of an act of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. In this case, on the part of the government. But it was welcomed by the the, the members of Pumaker First Nation and other First Nations in Saskatchewan and the area in the region. So back to your career, you had a long and distinguished career at, uh, as a diplomat at Global Affairs Canada, or GAC as we call it, um, and that's where I work now. Um, um, and you were the first member uh, of the First Nation to serve as ambassador for Canada. And as you mentioned, first in Vietnam and then in Guatemala. What has your Indigenous identity meant to you in your professional life? That, um, that is an interesting question. Like it's, 
it's not something that I thought about when I first started working after university. You know, it because I after university I worked for a law firm for a bit, and then I joined Global Affairs, where I was focusing on immigration issues. So there wasn't anything that really touched on Indigenous issues. So um, it 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 didn't really make me reflect on my indigeneity. Um, what what really made the difference for me was when I was working in the legal bureau at Foreign Affairs or Global Affairs, and I was working on the issue of Indigenous rights, and in particular, what was then the draft Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, I worked with a group of, of colleagues from within our ministry and with other government departments as well, and in consultation with the provinces in developing the government position. We also consulted with um, Indigenous groups, Indigenous organizations, and NGOs in developing the Canadian position. But I think where my, where my value added was in the discussions was in our interdepartmental group where we reviewed the declarations article by article to see what the impact would be in Canada, what the issues were, who should be consulted. You know, did a real um, deep dive into the document and developed an analysis of that. And in some of the cases, in some of the, I would say more difficult issues, um, I was able to draw on my own experiences and my own knowledge to help facilitate the discussion a bit. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that I resolved any of the issues, but I think that it did help people understand where other people were coming from in talking about um, self-determination or community mm -hmm. uh, uh, collective rights, that, that type of things, you know, like rights to the land, just because these weren't perspectives that these people were familiar with. So I was able to bring that perspective to the discussions along with another colleague who is Indigenous. Mm -hmm. have, and have you, um, as a diplomat working abroad, have you felt that you have been able to represent all of Canada, including Indigenous peoples? Yes. I mean, when, you know, when I was appointed as, as a diplomat at the beginning, when I was given my first um, posting to Beijing, I mean, I went there on behalf of the government of Canada. And in that context, as I said, you know, I would do my work in line with federal government policy, but those policies are always developed in conjunction with other stakeholders and other actors in Canada. So the government itself develops the policy and the diplomats are the ones that implement that policy overseas. So, you know, I 
feel that the voices of Indigenous Canadians um, on particular issues would have been heard and taken into account in developing the federal government's position. Mm-hmm. Perhaps not entirely to their satisfaction, but hmm. um, I doubt anybody was truly satisfied with the, the final positions that were settled. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that you had one Indigenous colleague that you worked um, closely with at, at GAC, but how, in general, how aware were your non-Indigenous Canadian colleagues about Indigenous peoples in Canada? I think um, most people would have had a general understanding that they would have learned from, you know, school, from university, uh, elementary and secondary school, um, from the media. There would be people that had more direct contact with Indigenous peoples, and of course, they would have had a greater understanding, particularly those people that lived in closer proximity to Indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. But there wasn't, you know, there wasn't any any type of information sessions. We did have Indigenous employees um, and, you know, there was an effort at various stages to recruit more Indigenous uh, people. Some of the people stayed, not everybody stayed. So there were varying efforts. Yeah. Did you ever meet racism at GAC? Um, I don't recall meeting any um, overt racism personally, but, you know, I'm sure that that I would have uh, at least indirectly encountered some biases or systemic racism in the institution. Um, I know that um, there is racism against uh, people from from other other races as well, um, and overseas you see that a bit more. I think um, so. It's not. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not a a racism free organization as much as we'd like it to be. Mm-hmm. Something else I wanted to mention. So you have received awards before um, for the work you did on the Landmines Treaty. And then in December, just weeks ago, you were appointed to Order of Canada. I wanted to congratulate you on that. Thank you very much. Um, you were appointed for your leadership as the first member of a First Nation to serve as ambassador for Canada and for your advocacy of human rights around the globe. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about that. As an ambassador, you can have influence on decisions and processes, for example, through advocacy. And at some postings, you can influence more than than others. Um, Do you have any examples you can give from your postings abroad of how you were able to support Indigenous voices or even advance Indigenous rights? Um, In my last posting in Guatemala, um, one of the reasons that I decided to go there was because they have a large indigenous community um, or indigenous population. Um, there are approximately um, 50% of the population is indigenous, I would say, many of whom live below the poverty line, and especially women 
and children at risk. So I had decided to make it one of my personal priorities in my posting to Guatemala to, to work on indigenous issues. And luckily that coincided with a couple of um, changes in, in the embassy. One was the transfer of the development program which had been administered from Honduras, it, the, it was transferred to Guatemala. So we became responsible for developing and implementing the, um, the development program. And at the same time, with the government, there was um, increased emphasis on indigenous rights and indigenous peoples as part of our foreign policy. So what we decided to do as a group at the embassy was develop a, an action plan and look at how um, indigenous rights could be advanced um, as a whole using the various tools that the embassy had. The main one being, of course, uh, the development program. And we were able to uh, shift the focus of the development program to um, a focus on Indigenous peoples, in particular women and youth, um, because those were the communities that were most at risk. So much of the development program right now focuses on those issues. Um, one other uh, thing that we did was establish an Indigenous professional experience program. And in this program, one Indigenous professional is chosen to work at the embassy for six months mm -hmm. in an advisory capacity. And what their role is, is to provide advice to the development program about indigenous issues, uh, to provide support to the program and to engage with the embassy as a whole, to talk about indigenous rights, about indigenous culture, and really generally the experience of being an indigenous person in Guatemala. Mm -hmm. So that's been running That's such a great for, initiative. Yeah, so it's been running for five years now and has been quite a success and in fact has been duplicated in other postings. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah, I know. It's great. It's a great project. Mm -hmm. As a diplomat, you're constantly navigating new cultures. How important is cultural awareness in negotiating positions and trying to reach agreements? And how can we learn or what can we learn from diplomacy in how we approach reconciliation? Well, as you're a diplomat yourself, you're aware <laughs> how important it is to know as much as possible about I, the culture of, a, of countries when you're in negotiations. Mm -hmm. um, it's not always possible when you're working at the UN and you're dealing with, you know, 150 different delegations. Yeah. But often when you are 
negotiating as a diplomat, it's with um, one other interlock. Has when you're negotiating at the UN or in a bilateral context, it's important to know as much as possible about the culture of the country with with which you are negotiating, as well as their history. Mm-hmm. For example, when I was I was in Vietnam, um, I tried to to learn as much as possible about about the history and the culture of the country, including you know the recent developments in the country, just to to try and understand where their government would be coming from on particular issues. And that's that's extreme value when you are in negotiations with that other country. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also useful even just, I would say, developing bilateral relations to to know more about, about the country so that you can engage with them on a deeper level. Now, I would say that there are parallels with um, efforts to promote reconciliation in Canada as, as well. I mean, mm-hmm. I think if if the average Canadian knows more about the history and culture of Indigenous Canada, that they would be in a better position to engage with Indigenous peoples and to promote reconciliation in a variety of different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of um, guests on this show have stressed the importance of reading up um, about the history, language and and culture of the people that you live near or that you're planning to approach. Um, And just like we do as diplomats. I mean, when I... You and I were also both posted to Colombia, not at the same time, but we have that experience of of living in a country which has a very long and ongoing conflict. And there's so much to read up about to understand um, to understand the conflict. And especially when, you know, like both our countries were involved in the peace process there. And, and I think that nation to nation relationships in Canada aren't that much different from from relationships b- between countries. So, you know, if, if we if we make the effort of learning and reading up um, about the countries where we, you know, abroad, where we posted as diplomats, then it seems like that will be the natural thing to do in Canada too. Yeah. And I also, like someone mentioned, I think it was um, Mary Wilson who was on, on my first episode. She talked about the importance of diplomatic protocol. And uh, I found that really interesting because we, you know, we, we follow protocol as diplomats. Um, and maybe we should focus more on that here, like read up what, what's, the, what's the custom in, in your culture and how do I adapt and how do I uh, follow that to show respect, um, which is so important when you want to build uh, trust and relationships. Yes, I, I think that you've highlighted, you know, the, the key issue, which is respect, you know, and it's, it's so important to show your respect for the other person's culture and history or the other country's culture and history because it matters. You know, what happened in Colombia in the 1950s mm-hmm. still has resonance now. And what happened in Canada in the 1800s 
also has relevance now and resonance. So it, uh, it really does make a difference to do that. And I would just say on language, I mean, I think you're right that that's incredibly important. And if you can learn the other country or community's language, you're in a much better position to engage and to negotiate if the case may be. Um, even if you're not able to, to learn enough of the language to be fluent, it's always welcome if you're able to speak a few words mm -hmm. when you're first introduced to people, because that's a sign of respect as well. Mm -hmm. Do you speak Cree? Um, no, I don't. My parents spoke Cree, but um, I was born in British Columbia and lived there until grade four. And my parents made the decision at the time not to teach us Cree because they wanted us to focus on English. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, um, I'm trying to study Cree right now. One of my cousins is a, a well-known well Cree teacher, okay. uh, Dolores Sand. And my sister and I and my sister's husband meet with her regularly to have dinner and to have informal Cree lessons. So it's, it's been a lot of fun and it's been rewarding because um, even though I don't speak Cree, I hear it in my head, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I'm familiar with the sounds of Cree, having heard it, you know, since I was a child. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I'm trying, but um, it's difficult to, you know, at any time to, to study a language, mm -hmm. but you got to try. Yeah, seems to get harder the older you get yes. to. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's, it's, I think it's a good reminder because when we go on postings, we always take care to learn the language or, or at least some, um, you know, rudimentary version of it before. But we don't think of that in Canada and with all the different indigenous peoples we have here. So I think we have yeah. a lot to learn um, on that. I'm at my last question. Um, okay. So, and that's really coming down to what this show is about, what non-Indigenous Canadians can do themselves as individuals to contribute to reconciliation. And so what are the top three things that you would suggest uh, that settlers like me do? First one um, you mentioned already, and that is I would encourage people to read a book by an Indigenous author. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily have to be a history book it could be a book about culture it could be a fiction book um one of the things that i've been amazed by in recent years has been the explosion of uh indigenous writers mm -hmm. writing in all types of genres um, all sorts of fiction you know post-apocalyptic science fiction mm -hmm. youth fiction um, Do you have a recommendation? Fiction. Something you read recently, maybe? or Well, one of my favorite books is called The Marrow Thieves mm -hmm. by um, Shirley Daimolin, I think is her name. 
and mm-hmm. I probably have mispronounced that. But she's from Manitoba, has his, no, she's from Ontario, I think. Um, the Manitoba writer I'm thinking of is Katerina Vermet, and she wrote a book called The Break. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is a post-apocalyptic book, The Mare of Thieves. Yeah, one of my kids is reading that in school right now. Yeah, but it's, I think it's accessible to everybody. It's really an excellent book. Um, the Break is, is one really more for adults, and it's about a young woman's experience in Winnipeg. Um, it's uh, not a, not an easy book, but it's a rewarding book. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of books about the residential school experiences, uh, both fiction and nonfiction. One of the books on my book pile is um, Five Little Indians by Michelle Good. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my one of my next books to read. Um, there's a book called Indian Horse by Richard Wagamies. And that was made into a movie. Yeah, really good one. That book was based on the story of one of my relatives. Oh, wow. There's um, a fellow named Freddy Sasakamus. Um, he was one of my mother's cousins, hmm. second, third cousins, I think. And is from was from Atacatoop Reserve. He died last year, unfortunately. But up until that time, he acted as kind of an ambassador for um, hockey, for Indigenous hockey, um, mm-hmm. because he had been, he had, uh, was the first treaty Indian to uh, play for an NHL team. Mm-hmm. He played for the Chicago Blackhawks. Mm-hmm. He didn't play long, but it had a, a real impact on him. And he, uh, hockey was the focus of his his life, really, mm-hmm. for, for the rest of his life. Did he um, like the, the book and the movie? I'm not sure. Um, because it wasn't, you know, I think it was kind of his story in general, in general terms, but I think the details weren't, weren't the same. Um, he wrote his own book or he co-wrote his biography, Mm -hmm. um, called, um, I believe it's called, they called me chief, um, but uh, that came out last year, and it's a good, it's an interesting book because it it talks about his experience growing up in a DACA group and going to residential school, followed by his kind of career in hockey, his time in the NHL, um, and then his hockey career after that, playing in the leagues in Western Canada. Mm-hmm. So I'd recommend that book as well. So that okay. was my my first recommendation. Yeah, yeah thanks for those. Which, They're great. Yeah. Um, the second one is attend an Indigenous cultural event. Um, a lot of cities 
and universities will have powwows, for example, and you can just go, you know, attend, sit down, watch the powwow, listen to the music, um, check out the crowds, check out the things for sale. Um, it's a it's a nice experience, and it also would give you the chance to engage with Indigenous people. And that's that's my third recommendation, and that is to actually speak to an Indigenous person, mm-hmm. find out about their experiences, um, talk to them about, you know, their background, where they went to school, where they work, mm-hmm. what their family's like. You know, everybody likes talking about themselves. Mm-hmm. So... I think it'd be it'd be easy to get into a, a really interesting conversation. So take that opportunity if you if you're if you see somebody that looks interesting, sit down, try and have a conversation with them. Mm-hmm. So that's my third recommendation. Thank you. Sometimes people are worried that they will ask the wrong thing or maybe that you know they should know this so it's embarrassing to ask what do you have to say about that well i would say that most if not all indigenous peoples have a good sense of humor because hmm. you really have to have a good sense of humor to to survive and i think if somebody asks a question that is a bit awkward or odd you know you probably get a joke out of it or somebody will laugh. I doubt that anybody would take offense. Okay. Um, I think, you know, if you're sincere in your engagement, I think people will respect that and understand that you're trying to learn. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. That's good advice, Deborah. Thank you so much for being on this show and for the great recommendations. Well, Thank you very much for inviting me and and having me on the show. And thank you okay. for for doing the podcast. I think this is is really wonderful that um, you're looking at kind of practical steps for reconciliation, which is such a big issue to unpack. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can do it is bit by bit. Mm-hmm. Learning by doing. Doing. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for that, and uh, thanks again. I'm so happy Deborah Chatsis could join us today. She was a great colleague and is a role model to many. I'm really interested in how diplomacy can be put to better use in reconciliation, and I'm grateful that Deborah took the time to share some of her insights. Deborah has three simple and clear calls to action. One, read a book by an indigenous person. Better yet, read more than one. On her bookshelf are The Mare Thieves by Cherie de Milline, The Break by Katerina Vermette, and Indian Horse by Richard Wagamese, amongst many others. Call to action number two. Attend an indigenous cultural event like a powwow. Find one happening near you and go take in the sights and sounds. And while you're there, you can also do number three. Talk to an indigenous person. We learn about each other's backgrounds, upbringings, families and histories through conversation. So seek some out. That's all for this episode of Everyday Reconciliation. 
thanks as always for joining me and until next time. Everyday Reconciliation is brought to you by Rio Tinto and Canada 2020. The show is edited by Erin Reynolds and produced by me, Elin Miller, along with Karen Smith and Aisha Jara. The artwork was designed by Sylvie Leuillier and the music was produced by Marius Miller. <laughs>